Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Mark Lanyon, author of Abolition and the Underground Railroad in Chester County, PA. Mark Lanyon is the author of Abolition and the Underground Railroad in Chester County, Pennsylvania. How did you end up writing this book? Well, that's a really good question. My sister lives in California, and a friend of hers gave her an orchid, and she said to her friend, oh, orchids, my brother lives in Kenneth Square, or near Kenneth Square, and Longwood Gardens is there, and they have a, a wonderful selection of orchids. And the woman said, oh, Kenneth Square, Lincoln University is close by, and my husband graduated from Lincoln, and my sister said, oh, well, my brother graduated from Lincoln. And she said, really? Wow, that's interesting. And about a week later, I get an email from my sister saying, Ernie, Mark, Mark, Ernie, the two of you talk. So we started talking, come to find out he, some of his relatives helped found Lincoln University. And I got thinking about it. And I thought, well, I graduated from Lincoln. Lincoln's close by. It would kind of make sense maybe to write a book about Lincoln University. So I reached out to a colleague and said, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And she said, no, you don't want to do that. There's been plenty of books written about Lincoln. Think bigger. Well, she used to teach at Lincoln in typical Lincoln fashion. When I asked her, well, what do you mean? She goes, you figure it out, because that's what my professors used to say. If I, well, Sir, I have a question. No, you figure it out. How are you going to learn unless you do that? So I dug a little bit deeper into the two uh, relatives, Thomas Henry Amos and James Ralston Amos, and found out, yes, they were involved with Lincoln University, and then they were involved with Hensonville, which I had never heard of, and they were involved with Hosanna Church. So I started digging into that and found out that Hensonville was founded by free blacks. They were involved with the Underground Railroad. Hosanna Church was involved with the Underground Railroad. And I thought, well, maybe I'm onto a theme. So just one thing led to another, and a year later, produced the book. Now, you, you live in Chester County. Correct. Uh, how, how present is the Underground Railroad history in the county? Oh, well, Kennett Square was known as the hotbed of abolition, and it was also known as the hub of the Underground Railroad, because basically that's where the Underground Railroad started, was in Kennett Square. Uh, when did you first become aware of, of this history in, in, the, uh, in the county? Really, it wasn't until I started looking into possibly writing a book because my wife, who grew up in media, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I didn't know much about it. But when I mentioned it to her, she goes, oh, yeah, the Underground Railroad, that was real prevalent around here. I'm like, I never knew that. So that's how I started. Now, you write in the book about uh, Mason and Dixon and uh, the, the importance of, of their work. Uh, how did they get started on that? Well, what happened was uh, Calvert, Lord Calvert and William Penn were both granted land from first King Charles the first King Charles the second. So they have their land, they're living there, everything's going fine, till one of the sea captains comes to William Penn and goes, you do know Philadelphia is in Maryland. He's like, no, it's not. He goes, well, according to my calculations, it is. So you know, he goes to Lord Calvert and says, what's going on? So they started putting their own citizens in the uh, contested area. 
And then they said, well, this is ridiculous. Let's hire some local surveyors. They did. They didn't like the results. They reached out to the Royal Observatory in London and said, we need people, competent people. And they decided on uh, Jeremiah Dixon and Charles Mason to come over in 1763. And they first went into Philly near Broad Street and set up a little observation center to determine the southernmost part of Philadelphia, which indeed was in Pennsylvania, the colony of Pennsylvania. Then they started doing more uh, surveying, and that's kind of how that started. Uh, how did they go about surveying? What, what was the process? What would, what would it have been like in the 1760s? Well, they had different equipment that they used, and they also had to use the stars. So they were looking for a geographic location where they could read the stars and kind of confirm what they had come up with. And they finally found that out in southern Chester County, and it was on the Harlan Farm. And they would set up the tripod, do the celestial readings, mainly focusing on the North Star. and then they kept going back. You know, they go out, do more surveying, come back to confirm it, and they set the tripod up, and they had put a stone to kind of mark where they needed to put their tripod. Well, the farmers are driving by in their carriages looking, and they're like, well, will you look at that? They keep setting the tripod up over the stone, and they're gazing up at the stars. We'll call it the Stargazer Stone. So that's how the name came about. Does that stone still exist? It still exists. It's pretty amazing. You can go to... Uh, there's a park there. You take a walk, and there's the stone. In 1909, they, um, the Harlan family deeded it over to the Chester County Historical Society. They built a stone wall around it. So it's pretty amazing that here's something from the middle 1700s, and you can still go and see it. So it's like living history right there. Now, you, you write about this at, at the beginning of the book. Uh, why is this story about Mason Dixon and, and the, the drawing of the lines important to the story that you tell in the book? Because they were using the North Star as their frame of reference. And fast forward about 80 years or so, when enslaved people were trying to get out of uh, the, the South, they were told, follow the North Star. And as I was writing the book, I just started crying when I, I came across. I just said, this is so incredible. This is amazing what happened. And the Mason-Dixon line, you know, had it not been for the Civil War, the enslaved people, it would have been a boundary, no big deal, but because of the importance of it, that's why the Mason-Dixon line is so, so important and was so important to the enslaved people, to the cause of freedom. Uh, now, let's take a little bit of a step back. Uh, Pennsylvania, the colony of Pennsylvania was a place where slavery existed uh, in the colonial days. Uh, what, what would slavery have been like in, in Chester County during the colonial okay. days? Okay. Well, slavery was, um, became legal in 1700. So in Chester County, as opposed, southern Chester County, as opposed to in the south where they have these big plantations and they need a lot of help, these were more like, I don't want to really hesitate to use the word indentured servant because they were slaves. They weren't indentured servants. However, they would go out with their, um, the, the man that owned the farm. They'd help set up fences. They'd help collect the crops. The uh, slave women would go with the owner's wife and go shopping. So it was more like helping out as opposed to being forced to do things they really didn't want to do. Is there a, a record of how many people were enslaved in Chester County? Yes. And um, early on, around 1780, when they passed the Gradual, Gradual Emancipation Act, there were about 3,700 slaves. 
and then that actually that was in the whole state and then in that area there were about a hundred or so and then 1840 there were about a hundred and then it went down to 1860 there were none so as you were researching this book, did, did you find a, a wealth of information, or was it hard to, to find information? No, no, no. What, if it hadn't been for the Chester County History Center, it's, you know, it used to be the Historical Society, they changed the name. They were phenomenal. I was able to glean so much information from there, from the books, from the newspapers, and then also going online as well. You were able to, I was able to get quite a bit of information. Uh, when did uh, anti-slavery sentiment start to develop? Actually, it started back in 1616 when th there, were, there were people complaining about it. But really, it wasn't until about the uh, early 1800s, started with you know, abolition society, the anti-slavery societies, the, and being in a largely Quaker area, in 1776, the uh, Quakers decided it was not compatible to own slaves. So you weren't allowed, if you were going to continue owning slaves, you were no longer in the Friends Society. So that was really the beginning of the, the movement to abolish slavery. Now, uh, you talk about the movement to abolish slavery. Pennsylvania did pass the Graduate Abolition Act that you mentioned before. Uh, what, what effect did that have on people who were enslaved in 1780? Well, well what the, according to the act, you could no longer own slaves, you know, you, you could have slaves, but you couldn't, you know, buy any more. And so, but what was onerous about this act was the fact that any slave that was registered with the state or the, the call, well, the state um, remained a slave the rest of their life. However, anyone born to a slave woman or mulatto woman would be indentured until the age of 28. So that's why it was called the Gradual, Gradual Emancipation Act. And the reason for that was the lawmakers figured if we really push for complete emancipation, complete, it won't pass. So they said, we don't really like this, but something's better than nothing at this point in time. So Pennsylvania was the first state to pass a law abolishing slavery. So once it was passed, what effect did that have on, say, uh, enslaved people in Maryland who did they did it change their perspective on the land of the free land of oh yeah of, because you know at that point basically Pennsylvania became a free state meaning you could no longer have any more slaves brought in and so what that caused was for people to start coming to Pennsylvania and there were really two uh, ways to come in to pass one was through Wilmington Delaware into Pennsylvania or through Oxford Pennsylvania in up that way. So was it uh, after the Gradual Abolition Act that uh, was enacted that you begin to see uh, organized efforts to help people escape from slavery in the South? Correct, yeah. The, the, the biggest time for the Underground Railroad was about 1835 to 1855, but prior to that, there were uh, people coming in. Now, Chester County is right on the border there, so uh, and, and it's near Philadelphia, so uh, how, how significant did, was Chester County as this uh, Underground Railroad movement was building? Well, as I said, Kent Square was known as the hub of the Underground Railroad. And so one of the major routes was to come through Oxford. Those were for people, enslaved people coming from Maryland, from Virginia. They would come through and uh, actually go, come right up the road, go past Lincoln University, which wasn't there at that time, go past Hosanna Church, and 
uh, Ann Preston was a major player with the Underground Railroad, and she's a mile and a half from, or her house is a mile and a half from my house. And so people would go there, and then she would, you know, take them to the next uh, Underground Railroad station. So it was a really key player because the people coming from Wilmington, they would come up what's now known as Route 52 into Kenneth Square, and then from there they would move on. Uh, so you mentioned Ann Preston. Uh, talk a little bit more about her. Who, who is she? How did she get involved in the movement? Well, her father, uh, a a Amos Preston, he uh, was involved with the Underground Railroad, or he was an abolitionist. She was an abolitionist, and her uncle was Dr. Bartholomew Fussell, who was a major player in the Underground Railroad. They estimate he probably, by himself, helped 2,000 or more enslaved people move up the Underground Railroad route. So she, having grown up, listened to her uncle talk about it, it just became a natural thing that she wanted to be a part of it. So what would happen is people would usually first go to Hosanna Church, get some food, get some rest, and then they'd be taken to her house where she would then um, take them personally to the next station. But what she would do is kind of, being a Quaker, you know, she had her um, dresses, her um, and would get dressed up. And then if she was going out and she knew slave catchers were in the area, she'd dress the females up as uh, women, like Quaker women. So they would go right by the slave catcher and they'd tip their hat and say, you know, hello ladies, you know, have a nice day. And she would just move on with them. So you mentioned slave catchers. Uh, were, were these just people who would go out and try to find people or were they actually professionals? They were people who were basically hired by the slave owners. and. Because yeah, occasionally the slave owner would come to look for their uh, property, so to speak, but it was easier just to hire these people. So they, it was a professional operation for them. They, yes. This that, was their job. Correct. Yeah. Uh, one of the important figures you talk about is Thomas Garrett, who was in Wilmington. Who was he? Thomas Garrett, he was a gentleman. His uh, house was the southernmost Underground Railroad station because it was in... Delaware, which was a slave state. He was a Quaker. He was actually one of the founding members of the Longwood Progressive Friends Meeting, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later, but he firmly believed that slavery was wrong. But as a Quaker, he used to tell people there are two types of laws, man-made laws and God-made laws. And if a man-made law is contrary to a God-made law, we should obey the God-made law. And also, so he felt that all human beings were created equal, and as such, they should be treated with the same dignity and respect. And so he never personally uh, had people, would take people on the Underground Railroad, but he, he hired a lot of free blacks to do that. So the free blacks would lead the others to uh, Pennsylvania. They mentioned in the book that Garrett and his wife often use creative ways to, to, to move people along. Talk about right. some of those. Well, like for, for example, uh, his wife one time, they, they had a, a, a lady there and the slave catcher was pounding on the door. So she dressed up as the slave and the slave dressed up as her. They changed clothes. And she goes running out the back going, I'm, I'm getting away, I'm getting away. So the slave catcher's like, what? And he runs around the house and goes running after her. And Thomas Garrett comes out with the enslaved person. They get in the carriage and take off. So they, they were very creative that way. 
did uh, once somebody left Thomas Garrett's place, was there a set route that they would go? Yes, they would go up what's now 52, and either they would be led by a free free black who would take them in a carriage, or sometimes they would walk. The other thing what Thomas Garrett would do is because a lot of free blacks would travel around and work on farms, he would dress them appropriately to look like just a uh, person, a worker, and give them a hoe or a shovel, and they would just walk up 52 with the, and people would leave them alone. And then he said, once you get to Pennsylvania, just leave the hoe or the other implement there, and someone will come pick that up, and you just keep going another mile or so till you see the stone gates, and that's the Mendenhall's house, and you go in there, and they'll take care of you. Was uh, operating the Underground Railroad for people like Garrett and Ann Preston, was it dangerous for them? Absolutely, because it, in 1796 they passed the first Fugitive Slave Act, and that said if you help slaves escape, you can be, uh, you'll be fined $1,000 or more. And for Thomas Garrett, what happened to him, he had a hardware business, he was very successful, and because of his work, Finally, he was taken to court. The court found him guilty. They bankrupted him. They stripped him of all his, his property, his business. But the people around there who really cared about what he was doing, they loaned him money to get back into business, which he did, and he eventually paid them back. So uh, you risked your reputation, you risked your job, you risked your property. So for the, the freedom seekers who were on being shunted along these these routes, uh, did they stay in Chester County or did they move on? No, they moved on. You know, some of them did stay. Like, for example, in Hensonville, uh, which was a free black community, some of the people would get there and they just liked what they saw, so they would just assimilate into the community. But getting back, if I may, getting back to Thomas Garrett real quick, uh, one time, one of the slave catchers was pounding on his door, was really furious, and he said, you know, I don't know what you did with with my property or my, you know, my owner's property, but I'm, I'm telling you this: you, if I ever see you anywhere near where I live, I'm going to tar and feather you. So, he's on a business trip. He stops by the house, knocks on the door, and he says, "So, uh, thee were looking for me? Here I am." And the man was so taken aback, he goes, "I'll tell you what: anytime you're in this area, I'll make sure you're safe," because he couldn't believe he just showed up and basically asked for it. How important were songs for uh, freedom seekers who were trying to find their way? Well, uh, one that they're singing about, you know, the um, about the, the the Big Dipper, and that was you know for the North Star, and then also talking about the River Jordan, and t people talk about that the Mason Dixon line getting to the uh, Free State. So using these metaphors like Jordan River. Uh, promised Land. Uh, these were specific references to the right. The Promised Land was Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. You know, the Jordan River was the Mason-Dixon line. And the thing about that, what's interesting is, most of the enslaved people really didn't know what they were doing as far as when they started leaving. But they had been told by people, follow the North Star. And that's basically all they knew, because they didn't have an atlas, they didn't have a cell phone with GPS, they just had to trust that. And that's, that comes back to the Mason-Dixon line. What would happen sometimes if it was overcast, and they usually moved during, under cover of the darkness, and if it was a bright, um, sky, you know, with the stars, and you could see them. That was easy, but sometimes it was overcast. They would just kind of crawl along. And what Mason Dixon did, 
every mile they put a stone with either an M or a D, Maryland, or, or a P rather, Maryland or Pennsylvania, and every five miles it was a crown stone which showed the, the British crown. So if you're crawling along, they were taught feel for the P, and they helped them understand what the P was, because P meant on that side is freedom, on this side, M is you're still a slave. So in, in Chester County, when, if a slave catcher showed up in a community, would word spread? Oh, word spread like wildfire. And, and that's why, for example, uh, John and Hannah Cox's house, they had a, a huge widow walk. And so they'd have people up there letting people know, keeping an eye out for slave catchers. And so, and that's the other thing is, for example, um, Chandler, Darlington, they weren't super active in the Underground Railroad because their house wasn't conducive to it. But if there were slave catchers keeping an eye on the Mendenhall's house or John and Hannah Cox's house, they would take the uh, in the Freedom Seeker to the Darlington's just temporarily so they could just keep them in a safe place. Can you talk about how the Underground Railroad was structured? In the book, you mentioned that some people were station masters, some people were conductors. What were right. some of the different roles that people played? Well, uh, you had the stations were the houses where people kept freedom seekers. The station masters, for example, Isaac and Diana Mendenhall, they were station masters because their house, Oakdale, they, they kept uh, the, the freedom seekers there. And conductors, they were people who took them from station to station. And then agents, that was kind of like a catch-all, anyone who kind of helped out. And they're also, just like any business uh, organization, you have people who fund it and so some people weren't intimately involved with it from a day-to-day -day basis but they would give money to help fund the Underground Railroad. Now one of the most famous figures in the Underground Railroad was Harriet Tubman. Was she a regular in Chester County? Was that part of her area? That right, she, she and Thomas Garrett worked closely together and so most of the people or a lot of the people she either brought them up through Wilmington or through Oxford and when she brought them through Oxford she would stop at Hosanna Church to give them a chance to uh, be fed and maybe change their clothing but working with Thomas Garrett she and the first time she came Route 52, and there's a, a house, it's called the Line House, because the Delaware-Pennsylvania border actually goes through the middle of the house. So if I may, from the book, when she crossed over the line, it says, when Harriet stepped over the line into the free state of Pennsylvania, it is reported she said, quote, I had crossed the line of which I had so long been dreaming. I was free. I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person now I was free. There was such glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. So that was her experience. So you can just imagine here what other people, other freedom seekers felt the same way when they reached. So she had had that experience, so when she brought people along with her, they were able to experience the same thing. Now, another figure, uh, James Walker, was a part of the movement as well. He's not as well known. Who is he? James Walker lived in Kenneth Square. He worked with Thomas Garrett and helped out. He would uh, keep freedom seekers at his home. He was an African-American. And one time, a freedom seeker was trying to get on a train in Delaware, 
and the it turned out the train engineer happened to be an abolitionist, so he helped him get on the train. But he said, look, when we approach the Willington train station, you need to jump off ahead of time. Otherwise, a lot of times there's slave catchers right there waiting for the train to arrive. So he jumped off, really hurt his ankle, probably broke it, and the, so the engineer sent word out. So people came to get him, brought him to James Walker's house, where he and his wife, they hid him in the attic, and then Nurse Hayes and Dr. Johnson came on a regular basis to care for him. And uh, finally, he got better, and he left and headed north, further north, just to be more safe. And about two years later, he stopped by Dr. Johnson's office, and uh, he said, I'd like to see Dr. Johnson. And the nurse went in and said, Dr. Johnson, there's somebody here to see you. So he came out and he said, yes. He goes, do you recognize me? He goes, no, I'm sorry, I don't. You know, who are you? And he said, well, I'm the person you took care of about two years ago when I got hurt. And he said, I just want to stop by to thank you for your care and introduce myself. And he said, I'm Johnson Hayes Walker. So he took you know, the, Dr. Johnson's name first, Nurse Hayes as his middle name, and James Walker as his last name. So now he was a free slave with a new name. Or, I mean, a free, free person with a new name. Did, uh, did station masters keep records of the people who were coming through that they were helping? Not a whole, they more would keep numbers as opposed to names because they just didn't know, you know, if somebody came in, because a lot of times the slave catchers would demand to come in and search the house and they didn't want like records of who they um, had helped. So is there, if they were keeping numbers, is there some sense of how many people were, were um, being moved through this particular network? Well, through Chester County, there were about 50,000 freedom seekers who moved through. And as I said, um, Thomas Garrett, it was figured, he estimated about 2,800 to 3,000 freedom seekers. Uh, Dr. Bartholomew Fusel, about 2,000. And there were about 131 people who were active in the Underground Railroad in Chester County, not just Southern Chester County. Of that, about 31, 32 were African Americans. Now you mentioned the Fugitive Slave Act uh, in the 1790s, but the most famous one was 1850. Uh, why did they feel the need to institute a new act? Well, because the, they, the South said, well, we don't think that has enough teeth to it. We need a stronger act to, be, uh, to help us out. And so the 1850, uh, Fugitive Slave Act, I say that's like the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 on steroids. Then every, basically every single person was required to report freedom seekers. It's kind of like child abuse laws, you know, it used to be only doctors and teachers, and then it was like everyone has to report child abuse, which I think is great, but the point being is people were required to uh, report them and the penalties were a little bit stronger for that. And what happened was, first, with the 1793, uh, people started, slave catchers started coming and just grabbing free blacks and taking them back into slavery. 1850 law, what it said was, if you have a piece of paper from the court saying, yeah, this is my property, even if it wasn't true, so you could find a crooked judge to sign off on it, you could just come and grab that person. And what would happen then is they would disappear, and for the most part, no one knew what happened to that person. All of a sudden, they're here, then they're gone. 
Was there any process if, uh, if your neighbor had been taken that way? Is there anything that you could do to try to find that person? Well, a lot of times they would first take them to the Baltimore slave pens. And so you could go there just to see if they happened to be there. And other than that, you could go and find out, I mean, ask around, hey, what happened to the, you know, uh, I'm just making this up. John brought a, a, a person in and what happened? Oh, they went to, you know, this plantation, that plantation, but it was really difficult. Now, uh, once the, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was in, uh, then a lot of the states began to uh, implement personal liberty laws. What, what did those mean? Well, the personal liberty laws, Pennsylvania had one in 1820, one in 1826. The 1820 was, it said, people, freedom seekers who come into Pennsylvania are protected from slave catchers. But then, as I said, what happened was slave catchers would come in and just grab anyone and take them. So the 1826 law said not only is it to protect the freedom seekers, it's also to protect the free blacks. Now, in, in addition to the Underground Railroad, uh, there was also a movement for free produce? Yes, because yeah, what happened was um, a lot of people felt, I'm, I don't own slaves, so that's okay. However, the question was raised, well, that's great, but you are buying produce, cotton that was raised by um, enslaved people. You're buying textiles that was made from the cotton that was raised by enslaved people. So the, the thought was, if we can raise our own cotton or go elsewhere in the world and import cotton or other materials to make um, textiles, then that would be good. However, it really never completely took off because people being instant-minded, they were like, well, we can go protest or we can write letters, or, but this was more of a long-term thing. And Sarah Pearson, she had a free produce store in Hammerton for about seven or eight years. And that was about the longest one. Now, you mentioned them a little bit earlier, but Isaac and Dinah Mendenhall, who are they? Talk a little bit more about them. Okay, they were probably uh, some of the most famous Underground Railroad people. Their house, Oakdale, which is about two miles over the Pennsylvania-Delaware border. And they, in their house, they had a, a large fireplace and behind it was like a false wall. And they would hide people there. In the barn, that's where they would hide the male enslaved people. And in the spring house, that's where they would hide the enslaved women or the freedom seeker, women and children. And so they were well respected in the community. And however, as they continued being very vocal about abolition and about emancipation and their active involvement in the Underground Railroad, the Quakers didn't really like that because the Quakers were similar to the Amish in the sense that they had their own communities, they wanted to stay to themselves, they didn't want to be a part of the world, and so they, some of the leaders started like speaking against the Underground Railroad Quakers saying, look, you know, you're becoming too worldly. We don't really appreciate this. So Isaac and Diana Mendenhall, they were disowned by their meeting house, as were others, John Hannah Cox, Eusebius Barnard and his wife, Vincent Barnard and his wife. They were basically thrown out because of they were too worldly, and that's not what they were supposed to do. So Isaac and, and, and Isaac's sister was actually married to Thomas Garrett. And that's one of the reasons they were, worked closely together. And their house being the closest one 
to Thomas Garrett that that's where most of the freedom seekers would go first. So that distinction you were talking about within the Society of Friends, is that, is that the, the distinction you write about with the conservatives versus the progressives right. in there? Yeah, because the conservatives, <clears throat> once in 1776 when the Quakers, the Society of Friends said, it's not compatible, you cannot own slaves and call yourself a Quaker. Okay, so what the conservatives said was, fine, you know, we just believe in following the law and we'll just let the legal system figure this out. And we, if we don't own slaves, we're doing great. The progressives were like, that's not enough. We need to take action. We need to be uh, outspoken about the need for emancipation. We need to uh, make people understand the evils of slavery. And we will participate in the Underground Railroad. And that's why so many Quakers were involved with the Underground Railroad, because they really believed, going back to man-made laws, God-made laws. The man-made laws, yeah, it was on the books that you could have slaves. God made laws, in their mind was all men and women are created equal, and therefore they should be treated with dignity and respect. Therefore, it doesn't make sense to own slaves, and you shouldn't. When was the first abolition society created? That was around 1765 or so, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. And just like with the Quakers, you had the conservatives and you had the progressives. You had the abolition society, which was all for gradual emancipation, gradual abolition of slavery. And that's when the anti-slavery societies rose up because their feeling was, we want emancipation now. You know, we want to abolish slavery now. So you had the, the conservative Quakers, the progressive Quakers, you had the abolition society, the anti-slavery societies. Now, these were organizations that were engaged in political activism. What did they do to try to communicate their message? Well, they would, you know, meet with their legislators, let them know how they, what they thought about slavery. They would go and they would have meetings. And for example, like the uh, East Fallowfield Anti-Slavery Society met in the Fallowfield, East Fallowfield Meeting House. Well, after a while, they brought in, uh, they had some speakers and the meeting house didn't like that. And so they tried to shut it down. There was literally a riot. And in the meeting house, windows were broken, furniture was broken. And after that, they, the meeting house said, look, we don't want you meeting here anymore. So they said, okay, tell you what we're gonna do. And they literally, uh, about four car lengths away, they built what's called People's Hall, and that's still there. Both places are still there today. So that's where they first started holding their anti-slavery society meetings. And up till now, you can have weddings there and just different civic organizations can meet there. Now, earlier you mentioned when we were talking about the Mendenhalls that they had a false room or a false space. Yes. Was that common for uh, people in, on the Underground Railroad to, to build these special aspects so, yeah, of their homes? Some of them would. Like, uh, for example, uh, Dr. Bartholomew Fussell, his house, The Pines, which is in Kenneth Square, uh, he had a uh, underground, in his basement, he had like a, uh, what do you call it, cold cellar. And that's where he would hide the, the freedom seekers. And so John and Hannah Cox, they would hide them in the barn, and from the barn there was a tunnel where they could escape into the woods if need be. Are these houses that you're talking about, do, do many of them still stand? Uh, the Pines is a beautiful house, and it's in the process of being placed on the National Register of Historic Places, the, the, the paperwork's going through. That's in really good shape. 
it's not open to the public yet, but that's what they want to do. Eusebius Barnard's house, which was active on the Underground Railroad, that's near Pocopson, and that is in the process of being refurbished. That will be open to the public. John Hanna Cox's house, unfortunately, right now, is not in very, well, it's standing, but it's all boarded up. It's, it's uh, spray painted white. And for those of you who know Route 1, it's right across from the Dunkin' Donuts. And it's owned by Longwood Gardens. And one of my little things is you're spending a lot of money redoing Longwood Gardens. Maybe you could put like 100000 towards the house to fix it up. But out of fairness to Longwood Gardens, the Longwood Progressive Friends meeting, they're doing a huge renovation there. So maybe once they're done there, they'll move over to John and Hannah Cox's house. Uh, talk about the, the, uh, the meeting that you were talking about. Okay. That, that plays an important part in your story, right. too. The Longwood Progressive Friends meeting, what happened was you had the Marlboro riot, and that was a Marlboro meeting, and Oliver Johnson came to speak there, and the, they didn't want him to speak, so they... The, they, meaning the conservatives, had hired a constable. So he got up, and first he was told by the leaders, you need to sit down. He refused. They brought the constable in to arrest him. They arrested him, and there was a lot of commotion. They didn't break windows or furniture. But the conservatives were like, okay, we're out of here. So they left, and he was able to continue to speak. What's kind of funny is Vincent Barnard was a member of that meeting, and he worked for his brother-in-law, Samuel Pennock, in a manufacturing uh, factory. So he was familiar with a lot of different things mechanical. So later on, he went and changed all the locks so the conservatives couldn't come back into the meeting house, which I, eventually they changed them back, but he was kind of ticked off. He was one of the ones that was disowned by the meeting house. And then John Hannah Cox, they were disowned by their meeting. The Mendenhalls were disowned, many, many. And they're like, you know what? this is ridiculous. We need to set up our own meeting. So 58 men and women got together and they declared that they would have their own meeting. So they were meeting in the old Kennett Friends meeting, which had disowned John and Hannah Cox. And then they finally said, oh, they woke up and were like, oh, wait a minute. We're letting these worldly Quakers use our meeting house. So they said, no, you can't meet here anymore. So they went to Hammerton Hall, which was a, a building that they could rent while they were building. It took them about nine months to build the Longwood Progressive Friends meeting. So by the name, it's in Longwood, it's progressive, it's friends, and it's a meeting house. So this was very active. They had a number of speakers there. And until about 1940, that's when Pierre Samuel DuPont bought the property. And that's why Longwood now owns it. So as you were researching this book, were you driving out and visiting some of these different sites? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and plus, in the book, quite a few of the pictures I took myself. And Longwood Progressive Friends Meeting, it's on the National uh, Register of Historic Places. It's also part of the National Park Service Network of Freedom Sites. And that's a really tough one to get. You have to have a lot of documentation, which they were able to get. And so the National Park Service wants to recognize places that were part of the Underground Railroad. And it's also on the Harriet Tubman uh, Underground Railroad byways, one of the stops. So today you go and it's a uh, visitor center. You're allowed, you can go in and they have a great display on the Underground Railroad. They have a map that they give people and you can take a driving tour around to see the different sites. What's the significance of East Linden Street? East Linden Street, hist it's historic East Linden Street is reported to be the oldest integrated street in the United States. And it was started by Samuel Pennock 
and uh, Edwin Brocious, both of whose parents were very staunch abolitionists and very active in the Underground Railroad. And both of these men were also abolitionists, Quakers, abolitionists, and involved with the Underground Railroad. Samuel Pennock bought a major part of that property, the, the land there, so he could build homes for his workers. And then Edwin Brocious brought, bought property and built his factory. He was a, a potter and built pottery or made pottery. So they had um, different uh, people working there. They had blacks working, whites working, and um, next to each other back then. Uh, they were living together or next to each other. And up until this day, it's still a very integrated uh, street. Now, another couple that, that we've talked about here are John and Hannah Cox. Uh, talk more about them. Okay. John and Hannah Cox, they were, as I said, they were a staunch abolitionists. They were active in the Underground Railroad. And their house, they, uh, right there on uh, Old Route 1, they uh, welcomed people in. They would uh, want to assist. And so if people, if the Menden Halls had too many people, then they would just go on up the road to their house. And one time, uh, a slave, slave catcher came and was pounding on the door, and uh, Hannah Cox had his freedom seeker in the kitchen and getting ready to feed him. She had just baked some bread. So the man's like, I need to come in right now. So she opens up the oven door, pushes him in, closes the door. The slave catcher walks through the whole house and says, well, I don't see anyone here. He leaves, and she races over, opens the door. He was a bit warm, but he was free. You know, so he was still okay. So he sat down, finished his lunch, and then they, uh, he went his way. So uh, after the Civil War, when slavery was finally outlawed, uh, what did these people do? Did they, did they write memoirs of their experiences? Not, they didn't personally. What, uh, Robert Smedley wrote uh, a book which is considered you know, one of the, the first major books on the Underground Railroad, in which case he wrote about all these different people. And um, some of the people, when I was at the Chester County History Center, they didn't have a whole lot as far as like personal memoirs, mainly because, again, they, they wanted to keep things more or less secret, if you will. Now, uh, we talked a little bit about slave catchers taking people who were free blacks and taking them into the South. Uh, one of the most famous cases was that of the Parker sisters. Correct. You had Elizabeth Parker and Rachel Parker. One lived in East Nottingham, Pennsylvania, the other West Nottingham, Pennsylvania, which is both places about 12, 13 miles away from my house. Um, the, the notorious uh, slave catcher, he, he came, knocked on the door of Elizabeth Parker's. She's free black, young free black, worked there, had a wonderful uh, working relationship with the family. He came, they opened up the door, he goes, I need some directions. As soon as he got in, he grabbed her and took off and went down the Baltimore slave pens, sold her to a person in New Orleans and she was shipped off to New Orleans. And then Rachel Parker, about two weeks later, same scenario, shows up there, hey, I need directions, goes in, snags her, takes her to the to the Baltimore slave pens, and she was there. And what happened was, people heard about this, the Quakers raised money, went to New Orleans, paid the current master like $1,200, brought her back to uh, Baltimore. And then they paid money to get her out, of the, to get Rachel out of prison, but they both, out of the slave pen, they both had to wait for their trial, at which point it was, 
determined that yes, they were free and they should be let go. Reverend John Miller Dickey, one of the co-founders of Lincoln, raised $1,000 and the state of Pennsylvania was so outraged what happened, they put in $3,000 towards the trial. Now, another uh, kidnapping case was that of Thomas Mitchell. Right, Thomas Mitchell was called Taggart's Corner. It's now known as Unionville, Pennsylvania. He was there and he and his wife, middle of the night, pounding on the door, the slave catchers come in with guns and they take him. And so Samuel Pennock, who I spoke about, his parents and he were active in the Underground Railroad, he went, had money, and the slave catcher had taken it to the master. And the master said, well, I want like 600 bucks. So he said, okay, I'll pay you the money and got him back. And so. He, uh, Thomas Mitchell lived there with his wife. They bought a house. They were very successful. And so fortunately for the Parker sisters and Thomas Mitchell, people knew or they kind of guessed where they were going and they were able to track them down where so many people who were snagged by slave catchers, n no one ever heard from them again. Now you mentioned at the beginning, uh, the, the town of Hinsonville, uh, right. where, where was that? Hinsonville, actually where Lincoln University is now, that's where Hinsonville was. And Hinsonville was started, Edwin Henson bought 30 acres of land from a Quaker and started because they looked around and said, hey, this is a nice place to be. So they, he uh, lived there, the Walls lived there, the Amos brothers lived there, the Glasgow's lived there, a number of people. So it was a place where they could live, be free, and enjoy their freedom. And then uh, at one point, they, well, so fast forward to when Lincoln was, was founded and was known as Ashman Institute, they needed property. So they kind of went and said, look, anyone want to sell some of your land? So they started buying up the land. And so as opposed to some of these old, you see the western towns that are ghost towns. This wasn't, a, Hensonville didn't turn into a ghost town, it turned into Lincoln University. So people were willing to give up their land or sell their land so Lincoln could grow into the university it is today. Uh, how far is Hensonville, or was it, from the border with Maryland? It was about six miles. And see, and then they would get together, they were really very family oriented, they would have whole church services in different people's homes, and then they decided, oh, we should come up with our own church. So they started raising money and they built Hosanna Church, it was originally called Hosanna Meeting House. They weren't Quakers, but that's what they called it. And that's the only property that exists today from Hensonville. All the other properties have disappeared. If you visited Hosanna Church, what would you see? It's a small brick church, and unfortunately, it's closed. And it used to, it was quite active until the minister passed away about eight, nine years ago, and it hasn't uh, started up again. And it's, I haven't been inside. I would wish I could get inside because one of my goals is to see it restored to its former glory. And it has a, uh, a graveyard. Is one of the first graveyards in the area where blacks were buried. They were named, <clears throat> as opposed to just being put in an unnamed grave. Now we're talking a little bit about Lincoln University, uh, the Ashman Institute. Who? What was Ashman? Ashman. <clears throat> he was a, a gentleman who uh, 
was really big into the American Colonization Society, and they thought it would be good to uh, send a lot of the free blacks o and over to Liberia. They started up Liberia and thought, well, we have them go there. They can be missionaries. They can do work there. And then American Colonization Society never really took off. But they, when they decided to come up with the institution, they named it first Ashman Institution after him. And then after President Lincoln was assassinated, they changed the name to Lincoln University. Uh, some of the key figures there, uh, Reverend John Miller Dickey uh, and John Rawson Amos, what was their relationship? Okay, when, as I got to know Ernie, early on I talked about the lady who gave an orchid to my sister, and then when I started talking with Ernie, he started sharing a little bit more about <clears throat> his relatives. Thomas Henry Amos was his great-grandfather, and James Ralston Amos was his great-granduncle. So uh, initially what happened was James Ralston, he was like an itinerant preacher, and he would oftentimes preach at the Hosanna Church, but he didn't feel he had enough theological background. So he went to, he had heard about James Miller Dickey because Dickey, before he took over from his father, the pastorship of Oxford Presbyterian Church, he was a missionary to enslaved people in Georgia. So he had a reputation of being kind to uh, the African-American. So he went to him and said, look, I'd like to get some training. He goes, oh, no problem. Tell you what, I can hook you up with my um, Princeton Theological Seminary. That's where I went. So he looked into it and they're like, no, we don't want him. He's not the right color. And he said, well, what about the Presbyterian? Uh, it was like an institution, the educational institution. The same thing. No, we don't want him because he's the wrong color. So that's when Dickey started mentoring him, tutoring him. And James Ralston would walk like four miles one way to the church for an hour of, of training two, three, four times a week, and then four miles back. And then finally, um, James, Reverend Dickey said, you know what? Maybe we should have a, an institution, an educational institution for uh, African-Americans. So that's how that came about. And both of the Amos brothers were in the first graduating class. They both went over to Liberia as missionaries. And uh, James Ralston, Thomas Henry died over there. James Ralston became very sick, came back, and eventually died here. So. What happened was once the uh, 13th Amendment was passed and slavery was abolished, you had all these freed blacks. And what had happened, because slave owners wanted to keep them ignorant, they weren't allowed to read, learn how to read, learn how to write, so they couldn't read any pamphlets, something that might be anti-slavery, and they couldn't uh, communicate that well. And they could talk, but they couldn't read or write. And so that's when, it, Lincoln University changed from being a missionary school. They started training people to be teachers, to go out into the communities to, train, to teach these people how to read and write so that they could learn on their own what it meant to be free. Um, if people want to come into Chester County and maybe go to some of these sites, is there, uh, is there like a central place that people would need to start out? Yeah, in Kenneth Square you have the Kennett Underground Railroad Center and also the Kennett Heritage Center. They're both housed in the same uh, building. And in my book, I have uh, email 
address and phone numbers. You can go there and then a docent will talk with you about the Underground Railroad and they have maps. They also, it, they'll be starting up fairly soon, they do bus tours and they go to all the major sites. And then the person who's leading the tour will talk about like East Linden Street or talk about uh, Eusebius Barnard's house or the Marlboro meeting. So it's a great way to, to learn rather than try to kind of figure out on your own. But that's one of the reasons in my book, throughout the book, I have like little boxes and I'll say uh, Eusebius Barnard and I'll give the address, a little blurb about them. And so you could even take a driving tour just using the book. Now, another incident that, that took place during the period your book covers is the, the Christiana Resistance, or sometimes called the Christiana Riot, in 1851. What, what was that about? Well, uh, William Parker, he was a uh, freedom seeker who settled down in Christiana. He started training African-Americans uh, about self-defense and about looking out for yourself. And then Edward Gorsuch, he was had a plantation in Maryland, and two or three of his uh, slaves escaped. And he got wind that they had gone to Christiana. So he came with his son and law enforcement. And so uh, William Parker's wife, it's kind of like uh, the witness, how they sound, they ring the bell and all these Amish come. Same thing, she got up, second floor window, opens the window, blows the trumpet, and all of a sudden all these African-Americans show up with different implements, guns, whatever it might be. And so they got more heated, more heated, gunfire occurred, and William Gorsuch was killed. So there were about 38 people who, after the investigation, they were arrested, they were being charged with treason, and they went to court. The first one, Castner Haney, was a, a white man who first tried to negotiate what was going on. That didn't work, so he was considered, you know, the ringleader. I mean, he wasn't even the ringleader. He wasn't trying to cause the problems. He was trying to solve the problem. So he went to court, and it took 15 minutes for the for the jury to say, "You're not guilty. You're acquitted." And so they threw everything else out. Well, this outraged the South because they were following the 1850 law. They had gone to court, got paperwork to come and take these people back to Maryland. And so a lot of people feel the what happened there was one of the contributing factors to the Civil War. The South was just so enraged over this, like, we follow the law, you didn't follow the law, what's wrong with you? And then what happened, um, William Parker knew about James N. Taylor. He lived just over the, over the line from Lancaster County to Chester County. He was known, as, he was active in the Underground Railroad. So he, his brother-in-law, and one of the freedom seekers went there, it was short distance. So he put them in a, a carriage or a wagon and took them to Isaac and Dina Mendenhall's house. So what happened to William Parker? Did he, did he stay in the area or did he keep moving? No, he kept moving, he wound up in Toronto. And that he was met by Frederick Douglass, who put him and his brother-in-law on a ship to Toronto, Canada. Before they got on the ship, uh, William Parker gave Frederick Douglass William Gorsuch's uh, uh, handgun as a way of saying thank you. And then later, his wife came and met him in Toronto. Now, Abraham Johnson uh, was a freedom seeker in, in that case. What happened to him? He, he went with them, oh. yeah. What would you like people to take away from your book? What I would like people to take away is 
there is so much rich history in so many different places. And what often happens is people don't take the time to discover that rich history. And like for myself, I'm guilty of that. I lived in Chester, Southern Chester County for a number of years. I knew nothing about the Underground Railroad. And as I did the research, I was just amazed at what you could find. So, you know, take the time to look into where you live and do a little bit of, go to the History Center, say, what, what should I know about this area and find out. Are you planning to write another book? Yes. What's that gonna be about? Um, probably Lincoln University. Well, we've been talking with Mark Lanyon. He is the author of Abolition and the Underground Railroad in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.